This Sunday, being the Sunday before Christmas, is also the last Sunday in our recognition of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering that we are honored to partner with as Southern Baptist churches. Um, Through the generosity of God's people, uh, through giving through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, the International Mission Board is able to do work in many, many, many places. It would be very difficult for most of us to be able to invest in. I was doing some looking this morning just to give you a little bit of an understanding of what the work the International Mission Board does. Right now, the International Mission Board employs about 3,700 missionaries throughout the global world. This last year, Southern Baptist, through our international mission efforts, saw about 72,000 people come to faith in Christ. 52,000 of those followed through in baptism. We have seen over 18,000 pastors trained throughout the world, 13,898 churches planted. The International Mission Board does this work on a budget of about $267 million, of which $165 million of that comes through this offering called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. So you can see that it is a great work that our Southern Baptist missionaries are doing throughout the world and how dependent they are upon us as God's people giving through the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. So thank you again for your gifts to that. Uh, Many of you give to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering through our Harvest Offering, which we do every year. Uh, and But we also have opportunity for those who do not participate in the Harvest Offering or those who would like to give an additional gift uh, to the International Mission Board. There are Lighty Moon Christmas Offering envelopes in the pew racks in front of you. And if you feel led by the Holy Spirit today to give a gift to the Lighty Moon Christmas Offering to help continue to expand the gospel around the world, you can place that in the offering plate at the end of the service, and that will be added to what we've already collected this year and will be sent on to the International Mission Board. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to Luke chapter 2 today. Luke chapter 2, a very, very familiar passage that many of us know here during Christmas time as we look at the, the message of the angels that, the, that they proclaimed to the shepherds. And we are finishing up today our Christmas series. We've been going around the theme, Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room, this Christmas season. When Isaac Watts wrote the lyrics to Joy to the World, he wrote, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. When Isaac Watts was writing those words, he was reminding us that Christmas means many things to many people, but above all, it is about preparing for the arrival of King Jesus. More than anything else, Christmas is about King Jesus coming and us being prepared in our hearts to receive Him. Christmas is a yearly reminder of, a gracious reminder that God provides for us every single year as believers about our need for a Savior and the provision of that Savior through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said when we kicked this series off a few weeks ago, that that we believe that there is a place in every human heart that was created solely and exclusively for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so we want to see every heart prepare room for Christ during this season. So far in this series, we've looked at several different passages. We looked at Isaiah chapter 9, and we saw 
about the prophecy of the child that would be born. And we saw that this, this, this Messiah, this child, is the light who pierces our darkness. He is the warrior who conquers our foes, primarily our foes of sin and death. And He is the Savior that our hearts really need. We also looked at John chapter 1 and we looked at the miracle of the incarnation where John declares for us probably the most powerful and life-transforming words in all of Scripture when he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christmas is about celebrating the incarnation of the Son of God, that God became one of us, that we celebrate Emmanuel, that our God is not just some transcendent, aloof, disconnected God in heaven, but that we have a God who fully understands us and has fully entered our world, fully understands everything that you and I are going through. Last week we looked at, again, the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53, and we talked about what the real tree of Christmas is, which is that that baby that we celebrate in the manger in Bethlehem is actually the Savior who came to die on the cross. And from the time that Jesus entered this world on that night in Bethlehem, there was a tree in His future. And that without the cross, there is no real meaning of Christmas. There is no reason to celebrate the coming of Messiah if he didn't die on the cross to save his people from their sins. Today I want us to look at a passage that many of us have been very familiar with. It's probably a passage that that you read with your family sometime on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Uh, Maybe you do that uh, before you open presents. Maybe you do that before you eat a meal together. Um, My first exposure to Luke chapter 2 was through that uh, great prophet Linus in A Charlie Brown Christmas. Any of you remember that? And uh, I still love to watch A Charlie Brown Christmas because my favorite part is seeing Linus get up and declare the gospel in reciting Luke chapter 2. Before we look at the text, I ask you earlier a question which I want you to think about again. What do you find to be the most glorious thing about Christmas? What, what, do you, what brings you the most joy during the Christmas season? Or what really ignites joy in your heart during Christmas? I think there's many things that, that do that for us. I think some, for some of us, it's, it is the joy of, of giving and receiving gifts that ignites a lot of joy. Some of us, we talked about a few weeks ago, some of us are, are those who like to get gifts, and some of those are those of us who like to give gifts. And we like the joy of, of, of buying something for somebody and giving it to them and watching them open that and watching them exclaim that it's perfect, it's right what I needed, things like that. And there's a lot of joy that we find in, in the giving and exchanging of gifts. Maybe for you, the most glorious thing about Christmas is just sitting in your home on Christmas night or on Christmas Eve enjoying the glow of Christmas lights and decorations. You know, sometimes when, when our family is getting together, there's a lot of things that are going on around Christmas holidays, just like your family. And when my children were much younger, uh, they would go to bed before me, and, and I would usually sit for about an hour in the dark living room with nothing on but the Christmas tree, and I would just sit and think about Christ and, and what He has done for me. And perhaps that's something that you find a lot of joy and glory in. 
Maybe for you, the glory of Christmas is found in celebrating with a giant feast with friends and family, and, and you enjoy gathering your friends and family together. There's a lot of things that we find glory in at Christmas. But as I want us to see today in passage in Luke chapter 2, that ultimately the glory of Christmas is Jesus Christ. And that Christmas is about our quest for glory in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ into our world. Luke says it this way in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, and this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Bethlehem was the city of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Then I want us to focus on this interaction in verse 8 between the shepherds and the angels. In that same region, around Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. As I said a few minutes ago, the central theme of Christmas in the birth of Christ is the glory of God. I believe that Christmas is the most glorious time of the year for Christians because everything around the Christmas season is centered around your quest and my quest to seek glory, to seek beauty, to seek joy, to seek something that's grander than the routine of our everyday lives. You see, Christmas is about the glory of God coming into our world through the most glorious person in the universe, the Son of God. And He did so in the form of a baby through the womb of a virgin. Christmas is, above all, about the glory of God. It's about our quest for glory. It's about our need to see God's glory. And it's about God doing what was necessary in order to enable us to be able to see His glory. You think a lot of times we... We read over this story because it is so familiar. How many Christmas messages have you heard in your lifetime? 
How many times have you heard a message this time of year from Luke chapter 2? If you're like me, probably several dozen. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself this question? Why was this event necessary? I mean, we, we read this story and we, 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 uh, we listen to messages on it, but, but why was it necessary for the Son of God to come into our world? Why was the incarnation even necessary? I think it was necessary because of the glory of God. Specifically, Romans 3.23 tells us in a passage that many of us are very, very familiar with, all have sinned, right? We know that. The Bible declares that. All have sinned. Every person on this planet has sinned. We are sinners standing before a holy God. But the second part of that verse is important because Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that you and I were created for the glory of God. You and I were created to glorify God with our lives. You and I were created so that the sole purpose of our lives would be to glorify God. And yet, because of our sin, because of our choices, because of our decision to live life on our own terms rather than on God's terms. We have sinned, and because we have sinned, we fall short of the glory for which God has created us. Our sin keeps us from being vessels for God's glory. And so Christmas is all about God doing what was necessary to bring you and I back to the glory that we were created for. I preached this passage many, many, many times, but as I began to reflect about it this Christmas season... One of the things that I noticed is that three different times in this passage, glory is mentioned. It's mentioned in uh, verse 9 when it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. It's mentioned in verse 14 when the angels are praising God and they sing glory to God in the highest. And it's mentioned in verse 20 when it says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Christmas is about recapturing the glory of God. And so real quickly, I want to share with you a few thoughts about Christ and the glory of Christmas. And really, the central thought is the first point in your notes today, which is this. The glory of Christmas revolves completely around the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christmas revolves completely around the glory of Jesus Christ. I asked you a second ago, what do you find glorious? What do you find joy and, and pleasure in during the Christmas season? And there are many, many, many things that we find pleasure in, but the glory of Christmas in the lives of believers should always revolve around the person of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 9. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So we see the glory appearing, and it causes fear, which we're going to talk about a second ago. And the angel said to them, Fear not, and then he declares to them a message. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I want you to imagine this scene for just a second. I want you to put yourself in the place of the shepherds for a second. The Bible says that these shepherds were doing the same thing that they had done every night for most of their lives. There was nothing significant about these shepherds. 
There was nothing significant about this particular field. And there was nothing significant about this particular night on the calendar. These simple, insignificant shepherds were settling in for another long night of watching over their sheep, protecting them from predators, and making sure that none of them wandered from the fold. Perhaps they were sitting around a fire, doing what guys do, sharing stories. Perhaps they were... um, settling in, and, and some of them were beginning to, to rest while some began to take their turn watching over the sheep. But think about that for a second. An ordinary night doing an ordinary task that they had done every day for years and years and years when suddenly the silence of the night was interrupted by an angelic appearance. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what angel of the Lord appeared to them. It doesn't even tell us really thing about the angel. It just tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And we don't really know a lot about angels except what the Bible describes for us. But there are a few things that we do know about them. One, angels are created beings, created heavenly beings, and as such, they are completely separate from mankind. Angels have a created order all of their own. They are heavenly beings created for heavenly purposes. And they are messengers and servants of God. Because angels have a different created order, we know that angels are not beings who were once humans who morphed into angels in heaven. So, when someone dies, you should never say to that person who they left behind that their loved one is an angel in heaven because that is not theologically accurate. We do not morph into angelic beings when we cross into eternity. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that human beings are created in the image of God, that we alone are the only being in the universe that is created in the image of God. And I don't know why we would go from being created in the image of God to being created in the image of angels. Secondly, angels are not pictured in the Bible as cute winged babies who sit on clouds and strum harps. It's a popular conception in our, in our art and literature today, but that's not what they are. As a matter of fact, they're usually not described very much in the Bible at all. One such angel is the seraphim, which is described in Isaiah chapter 6, as a creature with six wings, which flies around the throne of God and cries out continually, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But outside of that, angels are not described much in detail. So we don't know what they look like, but we do know that they're not cute little naked babies strumming harps and and sitting on clouds. We don't know much about this angel, but we know that this angel served God's purpose, and that was to announce the birth of a Savior. And I want us to look again at verses 9 through 11 and soak what is happening in this passage. The angel appears to the shepherds, And notice what immediately accompanies the appearance of the angel. The Bible says, verse 9, The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, that's an interesting insert that Luke puts in there. Because we need to remember when this event took place, that there has not been a word from God to His people for over 400 years, much less any sort of appearance of God or an angel. For over 400 years, God has been silent, and now, 
In the course of the last few months, God has appeared to Zechariah. An angel has appeared to, to Zechariah, to, to Mary, and to Joseph. And now an angel appears to these shepherds. This is a pretty unique experience. That, that here in this moment, this angel appears and, and the glory of the Lord appears with this angel around these shepherds. It was a, it was a unique experience that these shepherds had that, that very few people ever had. We know that Moses would visit with God and when he did, he would see God's glory. And we even know that the Bible tells us that sometimes the glory of God would attach itself to Moses' face. So much so that Moses would have to put a veil over his face because the glory would, would, would reflect off of him. We know that Isaiah saw the Lord in the temple. And the Bible tells us that the train of his robe filled the temple, which is likely a reference to the majesty and the glory of God. We know that an angel have visited both Mary and Joseph, but in those passages, we are not told that a brilliant glory came with the appearance of those angels. As a matter of fact, it just says an angel appeared. We know that Peter, James, and John were on the mountain with Jesus, and they saw Jesus transfigured in brilliant glory. But these shepherds were able to experience something very unique that most people had never experienced. And as I meditated on that, I asked myself this question. Why did the glory of the Lord choose to shine in this angelic appearance in the Christmas story and not to Joseph or to Mary or to Zechariah? Why, did, why, did God choose in this particular, why doesn't it just say the angel appeared to them and said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. He didn't appear in glory to the other characters of Christmas. And I believe there's a reason why Luke tells us this. I believe that the glory of the Lord is attached to the angelic announcement of the good news of the birth of the Savior who is Christ the Lord. I believe that the, Bible, the reason why Luke tells us that the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds was because the King had come. The Bible makes it clear that you and I are created for the glory of God and that our quest for the glory of God is completely centered around the person of Jesus Christ. As I said a second ago, John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and because of that we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 1.3 when he's describing Jesus and he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, you and I were created to made and behold great glory and to pursue glory with radical intensity. But our hearts only find that glory in the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe that our quest for glory is satisfied completely and exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ. And until you behold the glory of Jesus Christ, your quest for glory will never be satisfied in anything else. And once you behold the glory of Jesus Christ, no other glory will be an adequate substitute for Him. 
Three times, as we said, Luke describes for us a statement about God's glory to help us to understand that Christmas is about glory and that you and I can only find that glory by doing what the shepherds did, searching for, finding, and celebrating the Savior who has come into this world. Christmas is about the glory of, Jesus, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. But secondly, the glory of Christmas does a few things for us. Number one... We see in the shepherds that the glory of Christmas reorients our hearts towards what I would call reverential fear. It reorients our hearts towards reverential fear. One of my favorite moments in this story is Luke's passage in verse 9 when it says, The angel of the Lord appeared before them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with great fear. That's probably an understatement for the emotions that one would feel if your night was suddenly invaded by an angel emanating the glory of God around you. I think saying I was filled with great fear would be a massive understatement. And here again, I ask myself this question as I meditate on this text. Why were the shepherds afraid? Obviously, they were afraid by the sudden appearance of an angelic being who would not be afraid of that. But I think the fear that Luke describes for us goes much deeper than the fact that their night was interrupted by an angel. I think Luke tells us in this text very clearly why they were afraid when he says, the angel of the Lord appeared before them, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and because of that they were filled with great fear. Luke does not say the angel appeared before them and they were terrified. The fear that Luke is describing in this text appears to be directly attached to the presence of the glory of God that was surrounding them. And this is because the more that you and I behold the glory of God, the more our hearts are reoriented towards reverential fear of Him. The more you and I behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the more the gospel in Christ reorients our heart towards reverential fear of Him. Do you remember what Isaiah's first words were when he saw the Lord in the temple? Do you remember what they were? He said, Woe is me. Those are words of fear. Isaiah was in essence saying, I'm in big trouble. I am done with. And then he confesses, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. In other words, Isaiah says, I have just seen the holy God of the universe and I am in big trouble because I am not holy enough to stand here in this moment. That's reverential fear. When Peter and James and John were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible says they saw Jesus in this brilliant glory and then it says that the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Immediately after that, the text says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. That is reverential fear. See, the fear of God, reverential fear, is more than being afraid of God because God is bigger than you and can squash you with the word of his mouth. Many of us, when we talk about the fear of God, we talk about being afraid of God because He is so big and so powerful. But reverential fear doesn't have to do with the bigness of God. Reverential fear has to do with seeing the glory of God in His majesty and holiness. 
Because when you truly see God for who He is, the kickback on that is that you truly see yourself for who you are. When you truly see God for who He is, you see yourself because the greater the light, the more it exposes the truth of what's around it. And I think there's great parallel in this passage and throughout the Bible in beholding the glory of God and having a reverential fear of Him. Because every person in our world is a sinner, and because sin causes us to fall short of the glory of God, the reality is is that people in our world don't live with the fear of God. Paul even tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is telling us is that you don't fear what you don't recognize is there. And so people in our world who are sinners don't fear God because they don't know Him, they can't see Him. As a matter of fact, if you go around and you ask people, what are you afraid of in life? What causes you the most fear or anxiety in life? For most people without Christ, they would not say, I'm afraid of God. Because their image and their understanding of God doesn't reflect who He is in the Bible. For most people, what they fear is is what is often called horizontal fear. It's what Paul Tripp talks about. He says there's horizontal fear and there's vertical fear. And much of our understanding about fear is horizontal. Because much of the things that we fear are things around us. Things like being afraid of being accepted by others. Or afraid of losing our job. Or afraid of being the victim of a violent crime. Or the fear of losing a family member or a loved one. These are all horizontal fears. Paul Tripp says horizontal fear, whether that's the fear of acceptance or the fear of physical health or the fear of the loss of a job or the fear of terrorism, these fears are only disarmed by another fear. It is only the fear of something greater that disarms the fear of something lesser. It is when my heart is so filled and satisfied with the reverential fear of God that I am then able to not be captured by all the horizontal fears of life in a fallen world. It's only when our hearts are captured by reverential fear of God that we no longer fear what this world has to offer us. I have learned that whatever you fear most determines your agenda for life. Whatever you fear most determines the agenda for your life. And the glory of Christmas, as we see in the example of the shepherds, is that when we see the glory of Christmas in the person of Jesus Christ, it reorients our hearts towards the reverential fear of God. Thirdly, the glory of Christmas leads us down the path of what I would call gospel peace. The glory of Christmas leads us down the path of gospel peace. In verse 10, the angel announces good news of great joy, which will be for all people. And the word Here, good news in the Greek text is the word euangelion, which means the gospel. In other words, the angel was announcing the gospel to these shepherds. He says to them, there's a great message that you need to know, that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now notice what happens after the angelic announcement in verse 13 and 14. After the angel finishes declaring the gospel to them, The Bible says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, a giant angelic choir that filled the skies, praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is well pleased. You see, once the gospel was broadcast to the angels, the angels or to the shepherds, the angels responded by glorifying God and proclaiming that God was to be glorified because His glory was now on display in the gift of Jesus Christ the Lord. But the second truth that they declared is just as important when it says, on earth peace among those with whom He is well pleased. Because you see the declaration of the gospel is an announcement and declaration of peace. One of the hymns that we sing at Christmas is the song, It Came Upon the Midnight Clear. Do you remember that? And in that hymn, it says, Peace on the earth, goodwill towards men, from heaven's all-gracious King. People describe the search for peace in a lot of ways. David made mention to that this morning. When you talk about peace in our world today, for many people, peace is simply the absence of chaos and noise, right? I just want some peace and quiet. Anybody say that in your house, right? I just want some peace and quiet around here. I want the absence of chaos and noise for a little while. I've been praying for that for 20 years. (laughs) Most often when we describe peace, we're talking about, as David said a second ago, the absence of conflict. Let's just stop fighting and have peace. Nations sign peace treaties in order to end conflict with one another. But when the Bible describes peace... It's not necessarily describing the absence of chaos, and it's not necessarily describing the absence of all conflict in our world. When the angels say, peace on the earth among those with whom he is well pleased, he's not talking about nations not going to war anymore. When the Bible presents peace, it's twofold. First of all, peace in the Bible is a settled state of mind. This is the kind of peace that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4 when he encourages you and me not to be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present our request to God. And when we do so, Paul makes this promise. And what is it? The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What is that talking about? It's not talking about the absence of chaos, because he's talking about presenting requests when you're feeling anxiety and fear. What is he talking about? He's talking about a settled state of of mind that doesn't have to be anxious because it has faith in something greater than its circumstances. Peace in the Bible is a settled state of mind, but it's more than that. It's an end to the spiritual war. The Bible tells us that you and I as sinners are enemies of God. James says that whoever is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, we were enemies of God. This means that sinners in our world are at war with God. They are at war over what controls their heart. They are at war over who rules their life. They are at war because we don't want God's ways, even when God's ways are best for us because they're not our ways. And when the angels announce that today is born in this day, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and they respond by saying, Glory to God, peace on the earth. They're talking about an end to the spiritual war between man and God. That's why the gospel is an announcement of peace. It's an announcement that our war with God is over because Jesus Christ, our Savior, this baby born in Bethlehem, is going to bear the wrath of us as God's enemies upon Himself. 
And when he does so, those of us who have faith in him have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. That you and I are no longer enemies of God at war with God. We no longer have to feel the weight and the judgment of God upon us. We no longer have to carry the weight of our sins because peace has come and it has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the glory of Christmas, rightly seen, inspires us to respond with worship and praise. The glory of Christmas reorients our heart towards a reverential fear of God. It establishes for us a pathway towards peace. But ultimately, when we see the glory of Christmas, the right response is the response of worship and praise. I love what the shepherds say when the angels leave. I've always thought about what that conversation was like. Because they didn't say, well, what do you, what do you see? There, there's a sight you don't see every day. <laughs> they didn't say... That was nice. Hey, Steve, why don't you put another log on the fire and we'll go back to watching the sheep. They say, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. That's important. Because the the shepherds understand immediately that you cannot hear a message like this and be content with staying in the field. You cannot hear the message of the gospel and see the glory of Jesus Christ and be content staying where you are. When you hear the good news, you have to see it for yourself. And so they go to find the baby and Mary and Joseph. And when they did, the Bible tells us they did two things. The Bible tells us, first of all, that they declared the gospel that they had heard to Mary and Joseph. It says in verse 16, They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, this scene, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. What did they do? They shared the very same message that the angels shared with them. They shared the gospel. And then the Bible tells us in verse 20 that the shepherds returned back to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. So what did, the angel, what did the shepherds do? The shepherds declared the gospel and worshiped God. And that's what the glory of Christmas does for us as believers. When we truly see the glory of Christmas, our natural response is that of worship and witness. Because when we truly see the glory of Christmas, how could we do anything other than worship Him? We worship the God who alone could make something like this happen. And we tell others of the things that God has shown and declared to us. Christmas is one of the best times of the year because it's the best time of the year for many of us to tell your friends and loved ones the gospel. Because only the gospel and only the word of God makes sense as to why the whole world worships and celebrates Christmas. Think about that for a second. This message that we read this morning is the only message that makes sense as to why the entire world celebrates this one holiday. You see, it's not about a big man in a red suit who delivers presents to people. It's not about exchanging extravagant gifts in a celebration of wanton consumerism. Those things, if we're honest, don't fill us with glory. Those things are just traditions that we have adopted. The glory of Christmas is not going to be found in neatly wrapped presents and yuletide carols. It's not found in gathering with friends and loved ones. That doesn't fill us with glory. What fills us with glory is the gospel announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. 
And when we see the gospel of Jesus Christ as these shepherds did, we will respond as they did by glorifying and praising God for all that we have seen and heard. This Christmas, God has someone in your life who needs to hear the gospel. They don't just need to hear Jesus is the reason for the season. They don't just need to see the manger scenes that you've put up around your house. They need to hear why this baby came. They need to hear about the problem of sin, and they need to hear about the gift of a Savior who alone can save them from their sins. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me in just a moment? We're going to sing a song of invitation and response this morning. My prayer for you today is that your heart has been drawn to the glory of Christmas. Christmas is not just a a Christian tradition that we come together and celebrate, but that Christmas is about truly seeing and celebrating the glory of Jesus Christ. Maybe today you came to church with with a family member or a friend, and maybe it's been a long time since you've been in church. Maybe, maybe you gave up on church a long time ago. But today, as you've been sitting here and you've been listening to God's Word, God's been speaking to you and He's been saying to you that you need to place your faith and trust in Him, that you need to embrace the glory of Jesus Christ, that you need to, that you need to be changed, that you need to come to Jesus today and confess your sins and, and ask Him to be your Savior and Lord. The announcement of the birth of a Savior does no good if you don't actuate that in your life. Maybe today you need to come and be saved. Maybe today you need to come for some other reason. Maybe you need to come for prayer. Maybe you need to come to to join Central Park Baptist Church. Whatever it is, in just a moment, we're going to give an opportunity through a song that we sing for you to respond. We have decision counselors here that will be glad to take you back and pray with you and talk with you about your decision today. Whatever it is that God is speaking to you today, don't leave this place without doing business with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory of Christmas. And we thank you that the glory of Christmas is not found in evergreen trees with lights and balls. It's not found in presents under a tree. It's not found in in snowy scenes and hot chocolate. Glory of Christmas is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that every single person in this place today would know him as their personal Lord and Savior before they leave. Spirit, would you speak to us as only you can do? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? Sing this song, and if you need to respond, you come today.